This is Tevo DRC of Tevo Creative Leadership. We're going to be talking today about part two of Levi Prophetic Roots, who is Levi, what would he have from the point of Christ and ministry today, leadership, if we take it from his mother's side, which would be Mary, who would have the sin nature. Could he have brought down any of the chaos and dysfunction that was in the Levite, Levitical tribes due to what went on in their home. This is prior to what we know today a lot about, prior to all the findings about birth order, about relationships and private family growing up, about what works and what doesn't work, and we're going to look at it like that. They didn't have Dr. Phil. They didn't have self-help books. They didn't have ministry, deliverance. They didn't have even the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, like we do today. In fact, they didn't even have much of the Torah in Genesis when this happened. This is really pre-law, but it's what really happens in human nature, in real life, even now, even right now. Part one, I went through the old, the whole pre-law view that we take. We try to balance out and keep track of what really went on prior to the fall in the garden, prior to accusation, sin, meanness, false authority, true authority, the law coming on the scene. So Genesis 1 and 2 is that. Sin comes in and relationship division and chaos comes when when Satan, the accuser, enters in and there's the guise of the snake. He accuses God to Eve. Eve falls for it, eats that fruit. She gets deceived. Adam willfully participates. He could have said no to Eve when she offered him the fruit, but he doesn't. And then he, and he turns with his carnal nature now in play and runs and hides from the Lord. Both of them do cover themselves, and they duck and avoid being held accountable. God goes straight toward Adam in chain of command form, not to Eve yet. And he says, Adam, where are you? And he uses good authority, fathering authority, because he doesn't condemn him, doesn't demean him, doesn't accuse him or scream at him, lecture him. But he says, where are you giving Adam a chance to man up, fess up, rise up, and be held accountable? Maybe if he would have said, and this is a maybe, if he'd have said, God, here's what happened, and it happened on my watch. I take, you know, it's on my watch. I'm the head of the home, head of the planet. Uh, Would you forgive us? Maybe God would have done it, but he didn't choose to do that. Instead, he avoids God and then proceeds to accuse and blame shift over onto his wife his spouse, his own DNA, Eve, and says, but God, that woman that you gave me, she offered it to me, and then I ate it. But really, it was his responsibility. could have risen up and said, no, just say no. So then we find the reason for the law, and that would be all the sin and chaos and hell and pain and suffering and wars that come following. And even in when we have, before the nation of Israel, we have the Noah, the time of the flood, and God regrets they even made humans on the earth. But God is so good, and he can, he really wants a family. So he created the law, gave the law the Ten Commandments. I call them the tender commandments because they've been misused so much, used to finger point and blame people and, you know, put them down. And it's a stereotype now out in the non-churched that that's what it is. This is about finger pointing and you're going to burn in hell and that type of talk. 
So I'm saying if you look through the relationship, abiding relationship theology, that's our kind of relationship theology, abiding relationship theology, how would Jesus act in every single kind of human relationship in an area with his family, with his mother around town, with his disciples, with the sin-laden, with the ones who would never want to accept him, with the ones who are idolaters or not, with himself, with his disciples, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then we act the same way. He was natural, but he was never normal. So you can see that helps us, may help us depict what is back under the law, finger-pointing, gossip, pride, Vanity, you know, all this stuff that goes on when we're trying to fight for our place. We think it's God, but it's really our place. God wants us just to be vessels that shine, that he can shine through us, and that we obey him and we respect him and all kinds of other people. But that if we fall, we just ask forgiveness and get back up and go again. Relationship theology is a criteria for now because it's not normal now. It's not natural. There's TV, media, performance, showbiz, fantasy, and many good things fighting to get the real Christ out there. That's what we're talking, not to put people down. Never that. But let's get a discussion going, a doctrinal examination, so we'll know what is real and what is not. He's altogether lovely. And yet at the same time, he rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees strongly. And the Sadducees, he was not PC. He rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew 23 in a whole book of open rebuke and rebuke and open rebuke of a whole chapter in red letters. And he didn't hide and do it. He did it on the hillsides and he did it to the multitude and his disciples. And you should see what he said. It wouldn't sweet baby Jesus talk, it was like, you know what, you better decide who you're going to serve. So you can read that for yourself. So we're into discerning what is the real Christ in New Testament times. We're into discerning what is back under the law and teaching, common teaching out there and common belief system that affects now the masses. And what is the real Christian and am I one and are you one? And what is a male, female in this? What is head of home? Who is God in this? And where is the fear of the Lord in the lay of the land? I mean, in the church, not the outside the church. That shouldn't be expected if the church had done its job first. So where is the lay of the land in the churches? And what is a church? What is this fellowshipping about? We're really trying to help people think about repackaging in a healthy fashion, Hebrews 10.25, where nobody's there, like I used to see before I moved out here, worse, in pockets, keeping track of the Joneses in ministry, such as, I saw her, I saw him, I saw them not fellowshipping anywhere. They don't go to church, blaming them. You don't know why they have their reasons, many of them. I saw her... I saw him fellowshipping at more than one church. They are church hoppers. Talk about Phariseeism. Talk about nosy. Talk about non-Christ-like. I don't see church hopping listed as a sin in the Ten Commandments, in the law, and, and I don't see it in Jesus' relationships, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the whole first church, or Paul, because they were known widely to fellowship 
among many churches, the many house churches. They went from house to house because they were so full of joy and enthusiasm. They needed more. That's how I feel. But being led and self-governed by the Holy Spirit, the inward witness, is the key point in that. You just don't do it randomly because you feel like it. Oh, because I'm going to be goody-goody just because the Lord says, I want you to go here. It's important. I don't want you to miss that meeting. There may be a divine appointment. Somebody you meet, maybe not. You need to hear a special word, get a special touch, get a special prayer or not. you got to be led by the Lord. Inward witness of the Holy Spirit for the full counsel of God. That's based on... Ezekiel wheel one, the moving of the Holy Spirit gyroscope. As the Lord leads, you follow him. It's based on Genesis 5, the principle of Enoch, Adam's grandson. He walked and talked with the God daily. He was a prophet, and one day God took him. Just like I believe there's an Enoch move on the church, a giant Enoch move. Everywhere I go in leadership and lay, all colors, it's around the globe. And one day God's going to come and take them, and they will not be. They'll say, where'd they go? Or or, or we're glad they're gone. Let's give them reason, but in a good way. (laughs) Please, a good way. Glad they're gone. All right. So Genesis 4, let's talk about the father of the Levites. Now, who are the Levites? The Levites served God in the temple. They would open the door. They would worship. They were the minstrels. They were the leaders. They They were the... the ones who ran things, they were the ones who who prayed, they were the ones who did sacrifices, th- things. Now, the priests were different, but they were all considered in the role of leadership, eldership in the local temple, basically. Years ago, when I went to a worship conference, I was told, I was informed that the people who sang all the minstrels, there were thousands and thousands of them in the temples in the Old Testament that were the official minstrels that played before the Lord, and that you were not allowed to be on the worship team unless you memorized the first, the Torah or something like that. There were a whole bunch of scriptures you had to memorize, and you had to be in good training and good standing to be on the worship team. I thought, wow, what's the difference? You know, a lot. A lot happened between then and now. People don't know it's a privilege. This is what I found when I tried to find people when I relocated. They're they're immune to holy fear of the Lord. They're immune to the fact that it isn't about being on stage to be a show, like popular. It's about ministering privately before the audience of one. That's why I teach on this now so strongly. That it's about an honor. It's a gift. Your gift is to serve the Lord with it, but then it's an honor to be allowed by God to do the work of the ministry, to have an office, to be on the helps team, to be on the worship team or anything like that, but people are not getting it, and it was not pleasant if you deal with showboaters too much. People who don't show up, they don't keep their appointment with God, and they hold everybody else hostage. Then they blame shift onto somebody else. You know, that accuser thing is so convenient, and it started in the garden, chapter 3. All right. Now we look at our biblical approach to Levi. We know that Isaac begat Jacob and Esau, the twins, that the mother, the wife of Isaac, and Jacob bonded emotionally bonded more with each other, sounded like, and they were both connivers, and they treated 
they they formed a plan to cheat Esau, the other twin, out of his birthright. So they did that, and you can read about it in Genesis. And that con artist slick thing continued on in Jacob's nature till he had an encounter at Bethel on the Bethel on the rock when he got hit on his own head, his spiritual head, by a Holy Spirit rock of revelation that changed his whole picture of God and life. And he had quite an encounter with the Lord, and it changed him. And so then he went on and he worked for his, seems to run in the family, Nabon, who is his relative. And Nabon owned a lot of flocks, so he needed a helper. So Jacob went over there and signed on, and he saw saw beautiful his beautiful daughter, Rachel. And he couldn't keep his eyes off her, so Laban, is that called Naban? Excuse me, Laban, for labor, uh, said, I'll let you work for my daughter, my beautiful daughter. Oh, man, she is so beautiful. I know that. I know you love her. Sign on, and you can only work for her for only seven years. So at a, a Jacob said yes. Now, there was another daughter. Her name was Leah, and she was not attractive, and she was doe-eyed. That means she must have had something wrong with her eyes, maybe big bags or droopy or something. Didn't look happy, wasn't a pretty person. (laughs) So he really liked Rachel. Well, when the night of the wedding came, old sly traits of the family, old slick generational inherited tendencies, besetting sins. All of us are prone to that. We have to work at me too. Everybody, watch out. All right, so all that came into play, and Nabon pulled the wool from his herd. <laughs> he pulled the word wool from, wool from his herd, so to speak, and <laughs> he slipped in Leah under the veil so that the next night, the next morning when Jacob woke up with his new bride. He thought, ah, finally, after seven years, long-suffering years, I finally got the girl I wanted. He pulls the veil off, and there is Leah, the doe-eyed one that Laban has snuck in on him. So, amazingly, I don't know why, but he trusts his uncle again, and he says, Laban says, now, you know, hey, boy, you know, I admit I did it, but I'll still let you have the prize if you'll work seven more years for me. That man was slick. He was a con artist, too. So Jacob said, all right, I want to work for Rachel. So he worked seven more years, and then they got married, and that's when the trouble started. And we talked about this before, but I'll do it again. And we can find out that there was rivalry, tension, chaos, backbiting jealousy, revenge, all sorts of unhealthy carnal nature being displayed in the women. Now, Jacob had problems on his hands. First of all, he really liked the second wife better, Rachel, and therefore he probably projected rejection over Leah and her family. Because when the barren Rachel finally had children. They were the prizes, Joseph and Benjamin. And the women had such a competition, I read, that 
Leah, who had more children, was always holding that over Rachel and making her life miserable. Finally, then the competition, they got two handmaidens and had children, let, let Jacob have children with them. That's where the 12 tribes come from. Well, the tribes that come from Leah, out of them were the notorious Levi and Simeon. And they were known to be rebellious, and they were known to be over the top. And we're going to find out why when we go over to the roots of Levi. And we want to point out that if you're talking in the Bible about people, God's people, it's a tendency for today. It's a good lesson for us all. And that when we talk about these roots, you look at the teaching about generational sin that goes down to many generations, and we say, well, what has come out of Levi and the tribe when we find about his actions and his family? And the family, like I said, there was this disrespect for the mother because she was doe-eyed, not as attractive, the second, not even a first choice or second choice, but slipped-in choice of the father, and she had six children. And then within those children, we find that Levi's the middle child, which is a big deal these days. They didn't know that then. But that's a person who has a question of identity and has to find it and maybe act out to get approval. In the Bible history of Simeon and Levi, they're known for their murder. They're known to be savage. So something was not going on well in the parenting of the time with Jacob. Maybe he just didn't know how to do it, show how to, know how to show love or get respect without screaming. We don't know. Maybe the weak mother uh, projected rejection over onto them, so they had to act, work harder to get their father's approval. They know they really didn't. He didn't really want their mother. He wanted only Rachel. Now she's got eventually Joseph and Benjamin and their first choice. Our family, even though we got more, many more, they're not as good. We're the low class side over the wrong side of the tracks with our daddy. So all this does play a big, big factor, real life factor in people's emotional love tank, their emotional hard drive, their inner concept of self. Now, we only know that. I only know that because of all this out in the public in the last 30 years. But they had no clue. They were just out there hammering away in the wilderness in the heat, shepherding the tribes. So we can't give them, you know, put them down. The idea is we learn from it. So all this is going on in the makeup of these young men. Well, here's what happens starting in Genesis 34. I'm teaching this because of Levitical patriarchism, Old Testament Levitical patriarchism in the New Testament. That means submission, covering, being under authority, governmental type teaching, which has gone haywire. They're shepherding now. And when I look at controlling, shepherding, over-controlling, micromanaging, people watching, accusing, shepherding in pastors and leaders 
in the lay who've sat under these people, it's pretty bad. In America. It's rife in America, a lot of places. So we're thinking, where does this come from? And these same groups, most of them will go back to seeking the prophetic roots. That's where we're doing this. I thought if they could see Jezebel spirits everywhere, some of these people, if they could look for the Python and they can look for the Ahab nature and they can look for this, that, and the other in the prophetic sense, I'm going to look and see what happened with Levi. Because the Levites were in charge of the temple. And I would say, well, you know, it's sort of frightening to think if all this misogyny and, you know, anti-mother because he, his mother, you know, people who I know have I've met people, I've run into people whose parents, whose father abused the mother and the man is the child that I'm dealing with. And that person has a dim view of women because he saw his mother beaten down. And he, you know, in other words, it's human nature. So I'm thinking if they saw their wife, if they saw their mother, Leah, being disrespected, then maybe that transmitted over to their view of women later. We've got to do our inner work now, right now, because God wants to send brand new people in who've been hurt, really hurt, and you don't want to hurt them again. You don't want to be their worst nightmare if they've already seen several nightmares under the name of Jesus Christ following in leadership or their daddy or in lay. I'm honest. So I thought I'd just look at the, the, excuse me, the Levi roots. And I thought, well, what about Jesus Christ? How do we prove his lineage? If he, because on Mary's side, I know he was spotless. We know he's sinless. But on Mary's side, as a office priest, prophet, king, you know, the fivefold office is rolled into one in Ephesians 4 sense, New Testament sense. What would this say about the tendencies coming down through Mary. All right, I realize this. Good news, joyful news. Jesus Christ's heritage comes from the branch tribe of Jesse, all right, David's side, which is from the tribe of Judah, which was from the tribe of Judah, which is not the tribe of Levi. So therefore, the critical nature is not on him. It was a servant agriculture plowing tribe, out in the field, and very, very smart. But the idea it was not what we think today as he went about doing good, as Jesus went about as a prophet, as an apostle of all apostles, as an office minister out in the field. And that's maybe why I like the field side, the being out in the field with the people. He was more down to earth. If you look at the word the word Judah, it means to plow, all right, agricultural. But in a prophetic sense, in a day of worship, in a day of a New Testament sense, it means to plow up people's hearts and minds. It can mean Judah shall plow. It can mean praise, praise plows, worship plows the spirit realm. So we're for more discovery on this. We're for more teaching on this to be more positive and empowering. When I look back at the tribe of Judah and we look at the foretold Messiah of Isaiah 11, 2, and 3, we look at the portrait of a real minister, a real prophetic minister. And in Isaiah 11, I'm flipping there now, Isaiah 11, 2, and 3, if we realize that the same spirits of God, the seven spirits of God mentioned here are in the book of Acts experience whether you believe in tongues and speaking in prayer languages or not, 
you surely can wrap your mind around the seven spirits of God, which follow. Let me find, I have Isaiah, let me find Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. So if you want to teach people who are afraid of the Holy Spirit, afraid of more, which I'm not, but if you're afraid of more and don't want to get off, then you can at least read Isaiah 11, 12, and ask God to give you more of his seven spirits. Let's see. Where'd that go? Okay, Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. And the Spirit of the Lord, here it is, the prophesied New Testament apostle of all chief apostles, Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's one of the spirits, the Spirit of the Lord of the seven spirits of God. All right. And the Spirit of wisdom, true wisdom the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. We all need counsel. We all need might. Ask God for it. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the reverential fear of the Lord. Jesus had the fear of the Lord on him, in him. Verse 3, and all of these, the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, counsel, might, spirit of knowledge, fear of the Lord. It says, all of these shall make him quick. The perceiver, seer, Messiah, prophet was quick, really quick in understanding, and his delight shall be in the reverential, obedient fear of the Lord. And he will not judge this perceiver, seer of all seers, still would not use his prophetic gifting the wrong way. He was not a voyeur. He was not overly introspective. He was not spooky sin-spying or spooky spiritual. And he would not judge. He would discern, but he wouldn't accuse. He would assess. That's the word. He would use his prophetic gifting and power to discern and perceive and assess, but never accuse or unrighteously judge. You can judge somebody by their fruit, whether they're true or false, mean or sweet. Okay, but there's not a judging accuser side. He would not make decisions based on what he heard, by what his ears heard. He wouldn't listen to other people's evil report. He wouldn't believe the wicked report about man or woman. We can learn from this. We need to submit this to you and incorporate it in your theology, please. So we look at the tribe of Levi and what kind of carnal, passed-down tendencies might occur. And I don't know if I'm off or not in this. But when I was going to be a music major and I dealt with too many fine arts people in the secular world, I backed out. I could not do it. It was too competitive, uh, rivalry, caddy, talking, running people down. I had this roommate who was in the music, in the music, uh, program where I used to go and she would talk about how they would stand outside the other musicians that were you know students would stand outside the practice rooms and make bad comments catty comments about the ones inside I thought this it this is not for me and I pulled out and the Lord still used it because I had great training and I had been taught by a the prodigy the men, someone mentored by Rachmaninoff <laughs> by the way and so, but anyway, but I just didn't have the desire to be in that. I guess I had the fear of the Lord. Anyway, it's just not me, and God still used 
me and music a lot. He brought it out. And he can bring out your stuff no matter what. So we're talking about the tribe of Levi and how it affects ministry today. Well, I think it affects ministry because of the quality of the minister. I think it affects people because they think they're back under the law and they teach the word prophet, the office prophet, through the law, the finger-pointing prophets who did preach like Nineveh and you're going to die and you're going to, you know, judgment all the time. But that was because they just don't know. These people now, a lot of them just don't know. They're not trained on Hebrews 1 and 2. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 talks about the different kinds of prophets, office prophet role models that God uses. I'm looking up Hebrews now. Okay, let me look up Hebrews. And we're going to keep on going here. Hebrews 1 and 2, this is the Amplified. It says, In many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth. And see, that's the issue. God has a lot of things to say, a lot of words, a lot of ways of representing His Spirit, His nature. And He uses different kinds of groups and ministries and prophets and teachers and different persons of the fivefold ministry and other than that to get His Word forth, writers but this is talking about the different kinds of prophets that God uses back in the day and right now. Back in the day is Old Testament, right now is new. So what we want is to focus on what we can clarify so we're not back under the law and not teaching too sternly. Not compromising, we don't want to do that, but uh, stern, there's a balance. Sober is one thing. A wake-up call is another, and that's good. But to put fear on people and put them under word curses and put them under condemnation is a different accusation. We want to assess. We want to be sober. We want to be loving. In many separate revelations, each one set forth a portion of the truth, and in different ways God spoke of old to our forefathers by his prophets. In other words, it says in the more simple amplified uh, King James that in the former times God spoke through various methods and means through the prophets, but it was to the fathers, the leaders, the elders, the priests, and the rulers, kings, priests of the nation of Israel back then, the Hebrew nation. And so it says in these days, this is verse 2, but in these last days, which is New Testament where we live now, he has spoken to us in the person of his son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, and by whose things all things were created, all the worlds, the reaches of space, the ages of time, and so forth. So in the old days, the former days, Old Testament, God speaks through the prophets. And those prophets were strong and they were pretty fearsome. You have Elijah and Elisha. You have people like Jonah talking about judgment and Nahum uh, to the people of the area, Nineveh. You have Obadiah, Jeremiah, the little prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, all the different ones under the law prophets. And they were good. They were healthy. And they warned the leaders of the temple and of the leaders of the kings of God's movement. So there's nothing wrong with studying them 
and emulating them, especially signs and wonders. Nothing wrong with supernatural mixed in with the natural. But also, in the New Testament, we must also role model after the hero role model of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how that official office prophets over all the other office prophets that ever lived, over every apostle. He was the chief apostle, the organic, pure-hearted apostle, leader of the whole church, globally, multiculturally, internationally, eternally. And then we must... So we want to make sure we're role modeling after the prophetic minister in the New Testament sense. So I recommend abiding relationship theology as a source. How would Jesus do it? How do you relate to all kinds of people as the prophet, as the walking apostle, to ministers, non-ministers, believers, non-believers, different faith, all genders, all types. And there was a cast of characters there and no written Bible other than the Torah. That would be one way of discerning legalism. That would be one way of discerning how you act under certain pressure-filled situations. Would you ever point the finger? Just be like Jesus. The second would be, no, Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. And then that's the character of Jesus, the flavor of Jesus as an office, as a minister, as a person, as a pioneer, and act like that. And one more time, the book of Acts makes a big difference to so many people. I want to clarify it again. If you, because we're, time is short, and not everybody's going to want to believe the same thing, we understand it, but we're going to try to not compromise from my point of view, but also put out how to teach it to those who do not want, do not feel they understand or can comprehend or want to go there to the Holy Spirit very much, <clears throat> much less speak in an unknown language. And we don't want to put pressure on these people. We want them to hear God. We respect people to be formal, informal, casual, all flavors. Let them hear God. I present a sila, not a dogma. Because it's too much pressure, too much vocabulary going on that people need to be their own noble Berean and hear God and be held accountable to Him directly. So in the fact of the book of Acts, because I've been around people who put too much pressure on me, and I saw people putting pressure on the ones that really didn't understand it and like it, I am speaking like this. All right, balance. You present it as the Lord leads it, but present it in a non-legalistic, not back into the law, spooky, non-spooky, but accountable to hear God for themselves method. Picture as the prophet of the New Testament, Hebrews 2, that it's about how Jesus would look, act, model, resemble a prophet. Revelation 19.10, if I'm remembering that, correctly the location it says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of jesus so when you hear somebody give a prophetic word male or female me or anyone else then they must have the fear of the lord they must have the coding of isaiah 11 2 and 3 in their ministry they must be perceptive but discerning have the fear of the lord love people like people like themselves and then be like Jesus in all the relationships, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if they are like the tribe of Levi and the fact they have Levitical patriarchism, matriarchism, subservient matriarchism, or any kind of people-pleaser, disrespect, accusation, uh, ministry accusation, leader, 
fear of man, then watch out. So we're not teaching the spirit of prophecy occult. We're not new age. This is about not psychic. This is about getting a word, sitting there with God, and one day you get an idea, a dream, or a picture of words, or an idea keeps recurring, and it would be to edify, comfort, and strengthen somebody or some group. It could be written. It could be spoken. It could be on TV. It could be in a group. It could be as a ministry, and it's... The kind I'm teaching about is really the oracle office, and it could be in a group where you're waiting and all of a sudden someone speaks in tongues, you pause, there's an interpretation. That's another type of prophecy. The third type of prophecy that we bump into all the time is those who deal with the nation of Israel, the historical end times. That's not my field. Hearing a word of the Lord, receiving a word of the Lord, blessing people with the word of the Lord whether it's written or spoken or sung, as a message is my field. All right. So when we're teaching on discerning the Levitical roots, which would not be pleasing, or patriarchal roots, you know, there's nothing wrong with a wise, we're four. I want to promote wise patriarchs, stable anchormen, people who have a disposition, even a matriarch, when there isn't a man, or you know what I mean, the people who give credibility and authenticity and stability to a family were for you, every one of you. This is not about you. When we talk about Western European Levitical patriarch or any other kind of Levitical patriarch, this is back under the law. Old Testament using control, even abuse to shame people, even accusation because of legalistic law, and it gets down on the people. It resembles the Pharisee. It resembles the accuser, whether it's privately, publicly, out in the congregation. But a real patriarch, a balanced, wise patriarch or matriarch, is healthy, stable. They may only, you know, not display a lot of emotions because they're an anchor disposition. They may have a, you know, sort of a, you don't monkey with them disposition, but they are not, but they're fair. And if you're not a patriarch or matriarch, then you are a person, a pastor, a leader, a parent, a dad or a mom, a man or a woman. So you want to just think about these vocabulary words and terms because they're huge, too huge in our fellowships in our nation today, confusion of what that means. So when I deal with WELP, W-E, Western European Levitical Patriarchism, that's been my turf because I found out the hard way when I wasn't raised around it that that exists in great, enormous quantities, in the Deep South at least, and we're for populating, even repopulating Jesus Christ's fellowships and his true houses with safe places, safe havens that God can use and bring people in that are from other faiths and other nations people that are stressed out, people that are going through single parents, white people, black people, brown people, tan people, myself, yourself included. So we want to have a balance. And I'm just teaching from uh, prophetically being sent around to the different moves of God and experiencing firsthand the fruit of good doctrine, healthy doctrine, One, a lot of it, a lot more of it, but then also being rudely surprised and surrounded by at times it seemed this thing i determined later we looked it up we just you know after years levitical patriarchism so we're teaching against that but we like and respect the people that teach it
So the idea is you have to know if you're teaching on the spirit of prophecy, on the office prophet, what it is and what it isn't. In the New Testament days in which we now find ourselves, it's got to look like Jesus. Jesus went about doing good. He didn't just stay cooped up in his office, surrounded by bodyguards, handlers. He had a demeanor where he was casual and comfortable with all kinds of people, yet very strong and very perceptive in discernment could handle all kinds of flavors with not flinching, showing fear, being a patriarch, or patronizing. Jesus Christ and his whole group did not have Roman patricianism, which is also in this same kind of group or out in the flavors that we need to talk about, discern, and dissect, and get rid of. Uh, Roman patricianism, who were the Roman patricians? You can Google them like I did. They were the 80 aristocracy aristocratic Roman governors who had the power to make policies, thumbs up or thumbs down, and they were, it was an elite. See, that's it. It's elite power. It's elite governing power, and it doesn't want to be messed with. It is. It wants to be the one on top and in control, and so that's out there, especially it causes, in a Christian sense, it truly causes a respecter of person's spirit to come in the body and in ministry. What is a respecter of persons? It's not part of James 3.17, relationship friendly. Relationship friendly is James 3.17, love is uh, any wisdom that comes from above, 